Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7-365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears and open heart and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.gene. Before we get started today, I would like to tell you that suicide is mentioned multiple times in this episode. If you or someone you know is going to be triggered by that, or you're struggling with suicidal ideation, or you have a plan to commit suicide, please reach out, speak with a counselor today at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, will also be mentioned multiple times during this episode. The expressed views and opinions by the interviewee do not reflect AA as a whole. Please enjoy! I, I can't get these memories out of my mind And some kind of madness has started to Like, is there any sort of impression you want me to do when when I start the show? Um, like when I do the welcome, like anybody famous? So you had uh, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. Fuck. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Peter Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> welcome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. My name is. Uh... <laughs> Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Van and Abel. But most people just call me Nick. I'm not Peter Griffin. And this is my show. Authentic. Get it? Like, authentic. No? You take out the tick and you add Nick. Wee! With me, as always, is my dog, Marla. Marla! Come here, baby. No? Okay. Say hello to all of our listeners! Nailapolitan, where we only paint nails pink, white, and brown. This is Naomi speaking. How may I help you? All right, Marla, we're, we're not at work right now. Anyway, here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. Well, what do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes? <sighs> are in recovery from something. As for myself, I'm in recovery from alcoholism. Hi, my name is Nick, and I am an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have an eating disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Really? 
the list could go on and on and on and on and on. Luckily for you, the show is not about me. It is, however, about two people. First is my guest, Jared. Second is about the one person that Jared is going to help by hearing his story tonight to give them hope because we want to tell you that you are not alone. We are here to smash stigma. We are here to bring to light things that aren't necessarily talked about every day. We are here to help one person. So, without further ado, Jared, welcome to the show. Please, sir, introduce yourself in any way you see fit. Hi, everybody. My name is Jared. As uh, Nick said, I am here. I am another person in recovery. I'm excited to be interviewed today. Thank you for having me here. You're very welcome. You got a real nice beard going on. I've been working on it for quite some time there, how, sir. How long? How long you been growing ah, that thing? It's only been three months. Oh, man. Three months of ginger snap goodness. <laughs> Jared's got beautiful red hair flowing. It like, flows. I, yeah. I, I comb it over when I get out of the shower. Nice. Well, your facial hair flows like the rivers of Babylon. I hope you know that. I've never seen the rivers of Babylon. It's in the Fertile Crescent. I think. You're probably right. I know I'm right. Anyway, what are you in recovery from? Uh, alcoholism. I do like my drugs, but I first and foremost consider myself an alcoholic. And what is your drink of choice? Uh, at the end of it, it was tequila. What do you mean by the end of it, it was tequila? Uh, at the end of my drinking, it was uh, drinking tequila daily. I say it like that because at different points in my drinking days, there was times where it was a case of beer. There was times where I would drink strictly Svetka vodka. I had about a year stretch there where I drank Jack Daniels. So at the end of it, I was drinking tequila every day. It just so happened that you landed on tequila. Landed on tequila. There's no really rhyme or reason behind it. It just was tequila at the end. Tequila at the end. All right, that's the end. Let's start from the beginning. I like to ask my guests about their childhood, trying to get a feel of where you came from. What was your childhood like, Jared? What was my childhood like? That's a, that's a great question. So, Thank you. Um, I, I only ask great questions on this show. All right. I grew up in the foster system. I was given up when I was about 18 months old. And when I say foster care system, I don't mean that I went from house to house. I landed in one single foster home. And up until I was six, I was in foster care and I was adopted. I had anywhere from five to 13 brothers and sisters, siblings living in the house at all times. And by the time I was 13, I think there was 11 of us who had been adopted at that point to one single mother. So that's the best way that I can describe my childhood in as short a way as possible. Well, you don't have to make it as short and sweet as possible. It's it's totally up to you. Um, all right. I come from a family of six that I have uh, blood related. Two of them are my oldest brothers, and I hadn't met them until I was an adult. But growing up... I didn't really know my blood family. I knew they were out there, but I did not know their I did not know them personally. Growing up, I just remember feeling out of place, feeling kind of lost, uh, wondering wondering why I was given up for adoption, um, wondering why that my parents weren't there to raise me. I mean, I looked around and I had brothers and sisters who were living with their brothers and sisters, if that makes sense. So in my family of adopted siblings, five of them are directly 
related. Uh, I have a brother from India, actually. He was brought over here when he was a baby. I have another few siblings that are brothers as well. And out of this whole group of, you know, family members that had other family members that they went with, I was um, split up from my other blood-related brothers and sisters. My older brother and younger sister was, uh, they ended up being adopted by my grandparents. You grew up in the foster system, and you said that you always felt alone because you were adopted and you weren't with your blood family. Correct. When did you find out, or when did you come to the realization that you were adopted? Um, I knew that the whole time growing up. Well, what do you mean by that, the whole time growing up? Um, like so when you were the first time you could make memories or I, what? Yeah, the first time I could make memories. So I knew that I knew that I, I was in foster care. I mean, I still remember my adoption party, um, which was when I was six years old. That's probably the last, well, that's the youngest memory that I have of being a child. Was that a good memory? Uh, yeah, it was a really good memory. There was a lot of family and friends there. And it was, it was in my front yard. That was actually when my mother's house was still red. So when you refer to your mother, are you talking about your foster mother? Yeah. I'm, so anytime I ever talk about my mother, unless I say, oh, I'm talking about my biological mother. My mother is my foster mother, is my adopted mother. She's the one that I grew up with. She's the one that raised me. Yeah. When I say mother, that is always that's just my mother. What was the dynamic growing up with all these kids in the house? Were you, you said you felt alone. Were, were you forgotten in the shuffle? No, not not forgotten in the shuffle. I just more or less felt alone because I looked at it, you know, like, why did my parents give me up? And the biggest thing was my, my brother and sister that got adopted with my grandparents. Um, so they were blood. They adopted them. And I was broken up from my, my siblings. And so knowing that, I, I had so many questions growing up about why me? Why was I given up? Why was I the one that didn't end up with my biological family? Did you get any answers to those questions or were there those just internal questions? Um, those are internal questions. And I still have yet to get um, a direct answer from my mom as to why that I was split up from my siblings like that. You haven't asked her or you have asked her and I, she hasn't given you a direct yeah, answer? Yeah, hasn't given me a direct answer. What sort of answer does she give you? Um, her answer has always been, uh, it, and it's, it's so weird the way that she does it, it's where she'll completely stray away from the question that I ask and just say that she loved me so much and that it hurt like she she'll start bringing up that when I was 18 months old my biological mother tried to take me and my brother back from my mom uh, for a total of 10 days and that that completely destroyed her and broke her heart and so she always just goes to this one really sad moment in her life when I was taken away from her for a brief period of time um, so I never get a direct answer on why we got separated. Do you really want that answer? Do I? I, you know, as an adult now, it it doesn't matter, but as a kid and as when I was growing up as a teenager and I was in those years, yeah, I wanted that answer. So for for a long time, you know, I had all these all these fucking questions that I just didn't have answers to. And as I grew up and I worked through them as an adult, you know, I came to the understanding that does it really matter? You know, right now, no. I could give a shit less, but growing up, it was an issue. How were you dealing with the lack of answers to your questions? I mean, I rebelled. I got in a lot of trouble. What kind of stuff did you do? What kind of stuff did I do? There was fights in elementary and middle school. 
I had started drinking and using at 12 years old. Okay, at 12 years old, yes. you started drinking and using. What did that look like? The first time I ever drank, I an older brother, an older adopted brother, brought home a half bottle of Bacardi Limo, and it was a party jug. Still remember the drink because I can't even smell it without gagging. Um, and he filled up a 10-ounce, 12-ounce glass cup, pours it in front of me. I'm 12 years old. I want to hang out with my older brother. So I take it and I slam it. And he looks at me astonished. And this is, you know, at an age where you don't know anything about booze. And granted, I'm a small person as it is right now. Picture me at 12, probably weighing 80, 85 pounds, four foot nothing. Standing five, 10 minutes later, I don't feel anything like what's going on. You know, let me get some more. He's again looking at me like, what the hell is this kid's problem? Pours me up another glass of Bacardi Ramon straight. And I remember this time vividly because I smelt it. It smelt disgusting. I almost puked just smelling it. I plugged my nose and I drank the whole thing. Why? Why did you? (laughs) I don't understand. I I was looking for, you know, even at that age, like... It wasn't enough. It was weird that, like, right away, as soon as I took just a little drop of it, there was something inside of it that made me feel just a little bit different, but it wasn't enough for me. You know, like... What do you mean it made you feel a little bit different? I felt the little body high, the little buzz, like, oh, this this warm, tingly sensation that you get when you drink alcohol. Like, if I were to go back out right now, it'd be that same... I guarantee I'd have a euphoric recall of that same time I... That first time I drank is just that that burning sensation, that love and desire that you have for something and you can't explain. After the very first drink, you got that. And then you wanted more. And I wanted more. And so I took that next drink. We're going to fast forward that story into 30 minutes later, me stumbling down the stairs, puking all over the side of my bed, all over the floor. Yes. Yeah. At 12, you would think that with having such a a, a bad experience with it, I probably wasn't going to drink alcohol again. You know, which is what a normal person would think. And I think that if you're not an alcoholic, that happens to you. You're never going to touch fucking alcohol again. You're going to go back to that one moment in time that you thought you were going to die at 12 years old and you did not drink. And so moving forward, alcohol was a maybe a monthly thing. Every couple months, you know, I was 12 years old. My brother didn't have bottles just laying around at that time. 12, that was right around the time where I started smoking weed. Weed had became my drug of choice as a child and that was used to escape that was used to to cope with life felt like an outcast as it was and so it's something that just brought me relief you were seeking relief for this loneliness and these questions that you didn't have answers for how did your drinking and drug use increase or did it decrease as you went into high school with weed I was smoking every day. My older brother was a um, was a pot dealer, and so I was the younger brother of a pot dealer, and so I got free weed. I think until I was like 21, I never actually bought weed in my entire life. So weed, it, it stayed prevalent until I was like 17. It was a daily thing. It was uh, before school. It was during school. I got suspended for smoking weed out on the bus before, smoking weed in the bathroom before. Before you go any further, did your mom know any of this was going on? She was very oblivious to it. Do you think there it was because there were so many of you? Yeah, there were so many of us, so she couldn't keep an eye on all of us. Also, one thing I'd like to point out about my mom is 
And this is what she told me, which I actually believe to be true. She took a sip of beer once in her entire life. She's never even seen drugs, never even smelled pot before we started bringing it into the house smelling like weed. I mean, I first started smoking cigarettes when I was 15 so I could cover the the scent of weed as soon as she found out what weed smelled like. I needed to start smoking cigarettes. Now, my mom didn't want to smoking cigarettes, but it's not a drug. And so she didn't get that upset about it. There was uh, quite a few years there where she was extremely oblivious to it. And how did she respond when you got suspended from school, when you were having these consequences from your use? It'd be an initial upset, but I, I do remember that when I was a child um, and I would get suspended, it would turn into like a mother and son day where she would uh, essentially reward me. We'd go shopping and get a new outfit for school, go out to eat. We'd hang out. We'd spend time together. Why um, do you think that was versus being punished? I don't know. And that's something that I've never asked her before. It, it was almost like she just let everything play its course. I don't know if there was any um, reason behind the, her decision to do that, but I I never never really got punished for things like that. I would get yelled at, you know, a stern warning, and then I'd just go about my life. Do you think if she would have punished you, your behavior may have changed? And this is nothing against your mom. I'm just yeah. saying, in hindsight, looking back, do you think if you were seriously punished for your misgivings, do you think your trajectory would have changed? Interesting that you asked that because that is another thing that still, as an adult, I just had to, when I when I did my fifth step. You're talking about a fifth step. That's in relation to the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is Absolutely. that correct? Yes. And the fifth step is what? The fifth step is admitted to God, to yourself, and to another human being the exact natures of your wrong. So in my fifth step and in the calm of resentments, I had a lot of resentments towards my mother. And a lot of them resentments were directly related to how I was actually raised as a child. Uh, One of them resentments were... I wasn't punished enough as a child. So yes, that is that is something that I've looked back on. I use it as an excuse for a very long time. Well, maybe if my mom would have yelled at me, maybe if I would have been grounded, maybe if I would have been whooped, you know, maybe if there was actual consequences to my actions, I would have turned out differently. Maybe I want to become an alcoholic, Nick. Who knows? Do you think that to be true? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> So you weren't really punished when you were in high school, so the consequences really weren't that great. In fact, you were getting a reward for negative behavior. Yeah, I mean, I got a day off. You know, usually you, people get suspended, they got to sit in the room, they got to focus on their schoolwork, their oh, homework. Oh, man. No. no. I, that sucked. I hated getting in trouble. I mean, I got into a lot of it, but it, yeah. it didn't deter me from getting into more trouble. I wish my parents... That's a resentment I'm going to put on my <laughs> fifth step. Mom, Dad, you should have punished me less, like Jared's mom. <laughs> I wanted to get new clothes and have, yeah. a, have a cake. And have a cake. Have a suspension cake. <laughs> Sounds really <laughs> suspension good. Suspension cake. <laughs> Happy suspension, son. <laughs> it's got chocolate in it. <laughs> when you graduated from high school, I'm sorry, did you graduate from high school? Um, no, I ended up uh, dropping out in 11th grade because they were going to kick me out. So I just. What were they going to kick you out for? Um, 11th grade, that was, there was a fight in 11th grade, um, and also my attendance. 
as I was showing up to school two days a week. And what did your mom have to say about that? She supported the decision, actually. The assistant principal had her in one day. You know, we sat there and talked about my attendance, and it was basically you either get your head out of your ass and you show up or you drop out. My mom agreed with me, you know, which, of course, I didn't want to be in school, that uh, why don't we just drop out and work on your GED? Did you work on your GED? It took me maybe six months. I did get my GED in order to enlist into the military. So what did your drinking and drugging look like before you went into the military when you were getting that GED? Yes, leading up to that. So like I said, I think it was from 12 to 17, it was pot every day. Towards when I got into high school, that's when um, we were old enough to know the older kids. Some people in high school looked old enough to get alcohol. Drinking became an every weekend thing, and these were... Uh, you know, I wasn't a normal drinker. It'd be from Friday to Sunday. I was getting just shit-faced, blacked-out drunk. But then about 17 with marijuana, I got burnt out. I stopped liking the effect of it. I don't know if the weed got too good or I just, it started, it was a chemical imbalance in my brain where it didn't affect me the same. And so I no longer enjoyed getting high. Um, so at about 17, I just stopped smoking weed. You know, it just was no longer my thing. And also, I started to really enjoy drinking. Up until and through my GD process and going into becoming 18, yeah, I was drinking two times a week, three times a week maybe. And when you got to the point where you were ready to join the military, what branch did you go into, by uh, the way? I joined the Marine Corps. Good for you. Semper Fi, motherfucker. Semper Fi, motherfucker. You enlist in the Marine Corps. Yep. What did your drinking and drugging look like then? The same. I didn't smoke weed. I couldn't tell you the last time I did any hard drugs, drinking on the weekends. And upon enlisting, I graduated the Marine Corps, drunk the whole boot weave, and then went out into, well, I wasn't into the fleet yet, went to my uh, MOS school, which is your what you're learning to do in the Marine Corps, your job. Um, yeah, it was every weekend. And, you know, at that point, we were old enough to have people buy boots for us on base. I was still, you know, I was 18 years old. I went to boot camp two weeks after I turned 18. So while my senior class was in high school, you know, I was in training. Um, and that was, I would drink a few days throughout the week. And then on the weekend, I'd just get wasted. Why did you decide on military service? You know, when I was younger, I always had a fascination for the military, you know, watching action movies and the likes. There was an aspect of it that I knew I needed discipline. I needed guidance. I hadn't found my calling in life. I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do. I'm fairly smart, but I didn't see myself going to college. So it's like, what does a guy do? And I just saw it as an opportunity. I also have a older sister who was in the Marine Corps. So that was, I think, the deciding factor for me. You know, when I'd sit there and I'd talk to her over the phone when she was stationed overseas, she had just kind of riled me up to the idea. And then at some point, you know, I wasn't going to high school. And so I walked into a recruiter's office. You finished your MOS school. And what was your concentration? I was a MAGTAF planning specialist, Marine Air and Ground Task Force planning specialist. So I was in communications. What do you mean? communications and communications were you on like a dope radio i honestly i was still in in a mat platoon uh, marines awaiting training i did not make it that far in the marine corps what do you mean you didn't make it that far in the marine um, corps i made it through boot camp so i earned my title of united states marine i went to marine combat training i graduated that and then they shipped us out to our school which is where we're going to learn our mos and i think it was the first weekend 
I was there. I flew into Virginia Beach on a Wednesday. By Friday, I was smoking weed. By Monday, um, we were all standing in front of uh, legal admin, in front of basically the, the lawyers or whatever the fuck they were. And we were getting in trouble for doing drugs. Fast forward that, three months later, I was other than honorably discharged. Other than honorably other, discharged. Yeah, other than it's not an honorable, it's not a bad conduct, it's not a court martial, but it's not honorable. So it's kind of like a no contest. Yeah, it's kind of like you fucking <laughs> I'm idiots. Plead no contest. Plead no contest. Um, <laughs> I'm not guilty. Yeah, but which I, is I'm which not going to contest this. Which is, um, you know, it sucks. Um, this is the first time that I, I I learned the lesson: admit nothing, deny everything, make false accusations. So we are sitting in front of, um, you know, the command officer, uh, the CO. This is after we got in trouble and we had to take our UAs. Well, we took our UA two days after we smoked weed. I'm thinking there's absolutely no way I'm going to pass this. And they're sitting there scaring me with, you're going to get court-martialed if you don't tell the truth. And, you know, so I finally fess up and I'm like, I'm one of the Marines who was smoking off base. You know, they tried to get me to name other people. I was like, I just got here on Wednesday. I'll point them out to you in a lineup. I don't know their name. So they, they scare me into telling the truth that I smoked weed. And then when I'm sitting there getting um, NJP'd, which is, it's just in front of a judge of military sorts. They asked me if I wanted to know what my drug test came back. And I said, honestly, no. Like, I told him myself, no, it came back negative, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I could have lied and said that I did not smoke any weed. I would have lost my security clearance. I would have had to go somewhere else within the Marine Corps. They would have probably made me a fucking grunt, but I still would being the I can't say now because that was 14 years 15 years ago but there is a big possibility that I was gonna not get kicked out so you got kicked out I got kicked out what happened after that Jared came back home to Minnesota I am from here born and raised got a job and uh, that's uh, really when my drinking started taking off due to uh, resentments due to anger you know that was the first time that I was like disappointed in myself so when I was in boot camp, I, I graduated as a squad leader. So four Marines out of 80 people in our platoon, I think. So I, I, I was a squad leader in there. So I, I, I felt like I found my calling. I exceeded. I excelled. I did phenomenal. Got the hell out of Minnesota. You know, I finally, like, found something that I was good at and I wanted to do. And all it took was one one time for me to smoke weed to literally shit the bed and throw this beautiful opportunity away upon getting back that's when i really started drinking heavily where it became a during the week became on the weekend kind of thing and were you living at your mom's house at this time yes so after i had came back i moved back in with my mother and what was her response to you being honorably dishonorably acquitted discharged i can't remember if i told her the truth I know there was some people that I told that I got medically discharged because I was uh, so ashamed of what had happened to me. Can't remember if I told my mom it was a medical discharge or if I actually got kicked out. Did that shame of being kicked out of the military, did that fuel your drinking? Absolutely. Like, what am I going to do now? I'm a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I threw an amazing opportunity away. I recall, like, for that first year after I got back, it was every morning... 
I would think about getting kicked out of the Marine Corps and every night before going to bed, just living with that shame. Like for a year straight, I guarantee that I thought about it every morning and every night. So it, it you know, it started to haunt me. Was the only way you were dealing with that haunting and that shame, was the only way you were dealing with that was drinking? Yeah. You yeah. weren't talking to anybody about it? No. Not a no, brother that's, or sister? That's, no, that's something I kept to myself. I still walked around with this sense of pride because they don't strip that title away from you. So I still, you know, I was like, I'm a United States Marine. And so there was this sense of confidence in myself still. But at the same time, deep down inside, it was like, what the fuck? It's extremely, I don't know about embarrassing, but it's not something I would share to people, you know, that, yeah, I was in a Marine Corps and I got kicked out. You know, most, oh, I wouldn't say most people, but I can see people thinking like, oh, it'd be cool or tough to say, oh, you got kicked out and it's funny, but it wasn't funny to me, you know, because it was a fucking calling for me. You missed out on your calling, or so you thought. What were you doing when you came home? Were you working? Were you going back to school? What were you doing? I believe I got a job at Menards, and that had lasted for about eight months. I think until I got uh, I got fired for my attendance, which has always been an huh. issue in my drinking. Yeah, interesting. And what did your continued use look like? Did it just get progressively worse? Were there any times where you got a period of sobriety in there? Because you've been sober for how long now? Uh, I got five months tomorrow right now. Congratulations. But all we have is? Today. You're goddamn right. Oh, yeah. Was... Or, I'm sorry. I, I can't say goddamn. My mom gets mad when I say that on my show. You're damn right. Sorry, Nick's mom. You're damn right, Nick's mom. My my mom? Yeah. Your mom. Nailed it. Did you have periods of surprise? Because you're how old now? 32. You are 32. So between the time that you came back from the Marine Corps... To now, how many times have you attempted to get sober? Attempted to get sober, I'd say two, well, there was, we'll call it three times. And what was the longest stretch of sobriety you've ever had? It was about five and a half months. I had 99 days, I went out and drank one night, and then I went back into recovery right away. And yeah, it was, I was approaching the six month mark until I went out and relapsed again. What did your drinking use look like? Right before you got help the first time, were you drinking um, all day, every day? Were you? What did that look like for you? For the first time. So the first time that I um, took sobriety seriously was when I was 19 years old. There was the Marine Corps, 18 to 18 and a half years old. Then I got out. And the following year, when I got a car for the first time, I got two DUIs. In a year. Um, within three weeks. Three weeks of each other, you had two DUIs. Within three weeks, yeah. The first one I was a hit and run. Fender Bender ran into somebody, drove off, pulled over. They followed me. They boxed me in. Cops were called. Second one was, yeah, three weeks later using a friend's car. You know, and I still have yet to tell him. I have amends to make to this gentleman. So, yeah, that was three weeks. So, according to these, for DUIs in Minnesota, you have to, you know, take a chemical eval and you have to go to treatment. And uh, that first time I went to River Place in Anoka for my first treatment center. Um, and that's when I think I did my first actual first step. Up until then. And what is this first step? Admitted we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, that was the first time that I like realized I had a drinking problem. 
So I drank a lot up until then, but I never really saw it as a problem. Didn't grow up around alcoholics. I didn't grow up with anybody who was in and out of recovery. So I didn't really know what alcoholism was about at all until I had gone to treatment. We're going to take a little break right there. And when we come back, Jared is going to talk about his experience with some help. Love yours. No such thing. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. Love yours. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. No such thing. No such thing. Heart beating fast. Let a nigga know that he alive. Fake niggas, mad snakes, snakes in the grass. Let a nigga know that he arrived. Don't be sleeping on your level, cause it's beauty in the struggle, nigga. It's beauty in the struggle, nigga. Yeah. It's beauty in the struggle, ugliness in the success. Hear my words and listen to my signal of distress. I grew up in the city and know sometimes we had less. Compared to some of my niggas down the block, man, we were blessed. And life can't be no fairy tale, no once upon a time. But I'd be goddamn if a nigga don't be trying. So tell me, mama, please, why you be drinking all the time? Does all the pain he brought you still linger in your mind? Cause pain still lingers on mine. On the road to riches, listen, this is what you find. The good news is, nigga, you came a long way. The bad news is, nigga, you went the wrong way. Think being broke was Welcome. Bad. Welcome back. Welcome back. Jared, do you wanna do you wanna sing with me or do you wanna sing Welcome Back? Are what, you a singer? What are we singing next? Uh, well, you can sing whatever you want. We're gonna sing Welcome Back. Alright, let's do it. Okay. Welcome. Finish it. Wow. I didn't know you could hit that note. Wow. That was really good. Marla liked it. She shook She shook for it. You're a really beautiful individual. Thank you, Nick. Inside and out. Inside and out. And your, your singing voice is impeccable. Marvelous. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes. God, I know that's why we're friends, because we do shit like that. (laughs) All right, let's get back to it. You were talking about before the break about at 19 years old, you're not even of legal drinking age yet, and you're starting to take sobriety seriously. You've entered a treatment center for the first time, and you talked about taking that first step seriously. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. How would you explain your powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of your life at that point? At that point, I'm 19. So we can look back from 12 to 17. So a big thing when I first first go around in treatment is they make you write the list of your first date of use. Putting 12 down for smoking weed, and it's pretty fucking young. Putting drinking down for 12, it's pretty fucking young. Um, you know, and up until 19, I had done a lot of fucking drugs. I always 
consider myself a recreational user when it came to heavy drugs. But I mean, when you smoke methamphetamines, it doesn't matter if you do it once or a hundred times, you just smoke methamphetamines. My unmanageability there upon 19 was losing two jobs already, getting two DUIs. So losing my license within a year of having my license, crashing a car, and it was uh, getting kicked out of the Marine Corps. So at that very young age, I had already felt like I lost a lot. What sort of help did you receive at this first treatment center that you went to after these consequences that you actually took seriously and no one was rewarding you this time for those consequences? Or what were you learning? I think at that time I was learning that I was able to enjoy life sober. That was the biggest takeaway from that for me. I still remember, so River Place, they used to have a place called Lake Place where you'd go up the last week of treatment and you were in a cabin full of food and that's when you wrote out your first, your fourth step and, you know, you would do the fifth step with a, a pastor or something like that. But during that time, it was over the summer and I remember going on a paddle boat with another one of the gentlemen in treatment like getting stuck in the middle of the lake. We couldn't figure out how to fucking steer it. So we're just going in circles over and over and over. And I'm enjoying myself for the first time. And I can't tell you how long without substance inside of me. That first time in recovery, I think it was just learning how to enjoy life again, being sober. You said that you did a fourth and fifth step while you were in treatment. And the fourth step is... What is the first step, Nick? Come on! Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. There we go. So when you were making that searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself, what sort of patterns were you learning? What were you learning about yourself? Because you said you learned you could have fun sober. I'm sure you learned more than just, I can have fun without drinking. What were you learning about yourself? I really cannot remember if we're being 100% honest. Well, I would hope you're being 100%, uh, 100% honest. 100% honest. Well, there's no such thing as 100%. Yeah, I, 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 99.9%. 99.9% yeah. positive, I, I don't remember. So that's that's how I'm, and I don't know if this is due to the excess of drinking or drug use, which I'm sure it is. There's a lot of years, really only remember bits and pieces of things. So if you were to sit here and when you asked me about my childhood and I kind of started talking about it, there's not much I remember about my childhood other than the major things that happened. Just don't really have the memory of it. Do you think perhaps that's not just due to your excessive drinking and drug use, but also that sounds like a traumatic beginning to life? Yeah. Do you think it might be due to that trauma or at least partly due to could be partly due to that trauma of me not wanting to remember a lot of things if that's where you're going with that yeah there's just a lot lot of things i'd rather not remember i'm just asking you to look a little deeper than oh it was just the drugs and the alcohol and that's Mm. why i can't remember shit for a lot of people in recovery there are things that are just repressed Drinking and drugging provided a solution for that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are some things I don't remember because I drank a lot and I drugged a lot. However, there are some things that were so painful, my brain pushed them away and I didn't have that memory anymore. Do you think that's part of it too? That could be part of it, yeah. But just to me, it just sounds like a very traumatic way to come up in the world. That must have been really lonely. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you, Nick. You're welcome. I love you, dude. I love you, too. I can't imagine what that would be like. And it's just like being an alcoholic. You can't really know what it's like to be an alcoholic unless you're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I can't know what it's like 
to grow up in the foster system and to be given up by my birth mother because it's never happened to me. I want you to know that I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I know that happens to a lot of children out there. I hope that someone that's listening can take away that you don't have to be alone and you can talk about it, mm-hmm. even if it takes 30 years. I agree. I agree 100%. How long after this treatment at the age of 19, correct? 19, yep. So how long after this inpatient treatment were you back to drinking? Three months. So treatment was 30-day program. I remember in the treatment program, I had uh, requested to go to a sober house. I knew that if I were to go directly from treatment back home, it was going to be no time that I was drinking. I just had this feeling about myself, and I, I felt I needed structure in my lifestyle, and I needed to be surrounded around sober people in that environment. So I had went to a uh, halfway house in uh, Wisconsin. So that halfway house, I was there for... It was two months or two and a half months, and it was it was funded through the state because I didn't have insurance at the time. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because there are so many halfway houses and treatment centers that are funded by the state or the federal government. Yeah. You don't have to worry about money. Right. There's so many ways to get help, especially in the state of Minnesota, yeah, when the, you can file for a Rule 25. Rule 25, yeah. That was, I mean, every time I had... You know, got to uh, the breaking point, to a rock bottom, um, and I knew I needed to sober up. That was one of the great things. It doesn't matter what the fuck you're doing in life, where you're at in life, how much money you do or don't have, you're always going to be taken care of by the state of Minnesota. If you want to be sober, if you want to try and get clean, if you want some help, literally, people, all you have to do is Google Rule 25, and you will get all the information you need about getting some help, and it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost anything and you can honestly be in a treatment center within 24 hours if you try hard enough to get there. There's hope. There is hope. And there's help. Back to the help. Yeah, back to the help. You were in this halfway house for two, two and a half months. Two, two and a half months. The structure was great. You were around people that were sober no. because you knew that if you weren't in that situation, you weren't going to stay sober. It allowed me to, I don't think I was doing too much uh, soul searching at that moment in time in my life. Still young, still fucking dumb. I was working towards physical health. When I say that, it's not just, oh, I was getting buff and jack, but I was actually taking care of my body. I was eating healthier. I was working out, you know, an hour and a half a day. I was really you know, focus on myself and being positive. At that point, I was, it was a requirement maybe two times a week to go to meetings. Um, I was still going six days a week. Everything that I did was related to uh, program of recovery. So, and these are AA meetings that you were going yes. to? Yes. What did you find most helpful about those AA meetings when you first went when you were 19? When I first went when I was 19, um, that was the point when I realized I wasn't alone because growing up and when I was struggling with my addiction like I never understood why I picked up and then I couldn't put down I can't just have a beer I can't just have two beers it was drinking until I was blacking out drinking until I was going to bed I never understood why and I I felt alone I felt like I was the only one who was like that you know even going with friends who would drink a lot they weren't drinking like I was I was on a whole nother level of I'm getting absolutely fucking smashed, wasted, stumbling around, acting a fool, being a dumbass. Like, why are all these people enjoying this? And granted, I'm having a good time, but I'm like, I'm drinking to an excess where I no longer can control myself. 
walking into meetings for the first time and hearing other people's stories, I actually realized that there were other people out there like me and that I directly related to. And what sort of solutions or what sort of skills were they sharing with you so that you could remain sober? Because you said once you picked up, you couldn't put back down. You couldn't put down. This is where we get into the part where I point out um, that it took me 32 years to actually get a true sponsor and work the steps. And what's a sponsor? A sponsor is somebody who has successfully worked the 12 steps and continues to work them on a daily basis. And he is there to guide you and help support you through your process in the early stages of recovery and into hopefully the rest of your life. And you said he because typically in the AA program, it's men helping yes. men and women helping women. Yes. Kind of obvious reasons. Obvious but it, reasons. that is no by no means the rule. And that's the great thing about AA is that there are no rules. There's steps which are suggested. It's literally the words that they use. These are steps that are suggested as a program of recovery because this worked for us. So these are the suggestions we got. Not rules. Not rules. There are no rules. It's like this is how we did it and we want to help you do it. Absolutely. And that in in you know a microcosm, that's sponsorship. I got this and I want to help you get this if you want this. So what did you learn from going to AA meetings? What didn't you learn from going to AA meetings that took you back out? How long were you sober? That time again it was it was so three, three and a half months until I lost the funding at um, the halfway house. I don't remember why or how, but they no longer were going to pay for it. So at that point in time, I had moved back. Well, I had moved in with my birth mom for the first time in my life. I had lived with her. I had nowhere else to go. What sort of relationship did you have with her prior to moving in with her? Prior to moving in with her, it was just a friendly relationship. Growing up, I had an open adoption, which is um, you can still have contact with your biological parent. Can you explain what kind of contact um, that was? What kind of contact? Up until 12, they were visits is what they'd be called. They were um, unsupervised visits. So my mom would drop me off, you know, at like a McDonald's or um, there's a place called The Mermaid in Coon Rapids and Oka County somewhere. And that was always the meetup spot. So my mom would bring me there. Um, and then I'd go see my brother and sister, see my grandparents, see my birth mom. They could be overnights. And again, they were unsupervised. You know, my mom wasn't, birth mom wasn't at risk of taking me. I mean, she couldn't take care of her fucking self. She wasn't going to abduct the child. So up until 12, it was, you know, unsupervised visits, lost contact for about four years. But then after that, I would just see her on Christmas, uh, I'd see her on Thanksgiving, you know, a couple of times throughout the year where I'd go and spend the night there, you know. And so it was never so much like a, a mother-son relationship. Like, granted, she is my mom and she would act as my mom. In a sense, it was more of just being my friend. So up until that point, um, you know, we had a friendly relationship. I, a couple times before this time where I moved in, if I was in trouble, you know, let's say I, at a party and a fight broke out or something, I needed to get saved. I could, she was the one. I can't call my mother, my adoptive mom. Can't call her at three o'clock in the morning with my fucking drinking problems. But I could call her and have her come save me. Is that the kind of relationship that you wanted? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd rather, I'd much rather have that. It moves forward into when I started living with her, she started to try and take on more of a parental role as she's still in the depths of addiction herself. What uh, is your birth mother's drug of choice? It's methamphetamines, and she's also an alcoholic. Is she still in active use? She, as far as I'm concerned, is in active use, but she's uh, functioning somehow. 
you lost your funding at your halfway house. Oh. You left there and you moved in with your birth mom. With her and within, I think it was four hours, I was on the beach. And I still remember this vividly. Um, went to Lake Calhoun with one, my older brother. And that started my illustrious drinking career for the second time. And how long did that second stretch of drinking and drugging last for? Um, 19 until 24. What was it at age 24 that you decided this time that you needed to stop again? In between that stretch, there was a lot that happened. So at 19, I went back out I went uh, and I was drinking. At that point, that became an everyday thing. I was just turning 20 that year. So for the next year, I can't tell you if I didn't drink a day, so in a single digits. So it was a year straight. Moved out to California. I was there for two years. In California, that was um, another moment in my life that kind of, I look at it like uh, what had happened in the Marine Corps. I was living on the beach. I actually had a condo on the beach. I had a job out there. I had a great girlfriend. The biggest thing is fucking California. I hate Minnesota. It's too cold here. And And here you sit. And yeah, and here I sit. And so again, you know, I'm looking at these opportunities in front of me and I'm looking at like where I am in life and I just feel great, but my drinking is excessive. Ultimately, I ended up getting in a lot of trouble out there. And so it was either I stay there and I face the consequences or I come back to the state of Minnesota. That's at 23 years old. I'm now having to move back to Minnesota. I'm having to walk back with my tail between my legs, you know, with another disappointment, with another, hey, I had fucking everything in front of me at all these opportunities and options, and life was just grand there, and I just shit the bed yet again, so I came back here. And now that leads on to another very hard and heavy year of drinking. I'm dealing with a heartbreak. Again, not having a purpose in life, not knowing where I'm going or what I'm going to do or like losing that opportunity again. So I think it, it really took another really big fuck up and losing, you know, not living in California and having to come back here again for me to get to rock bottom. Though I think that time um, at about 24, I was at rock bottom again, um, emotionally, physically, mentally. What did rock bottom actually look like for you on all levels, emotionally, all levels. mentally, spiritually, physically? Physically, yeah. Um, physically, it was to the point where I was going through withdrawals if I didn't drink. And what did those withdrawals look like? Uh, my withdrawals entail uh, night terrors, uh, night sweats. I can't eat, can't sleep, shake, muscle fatigue. Biggest thing is that, uh, nightmares. I say nightmares. I have very livid and fucked up nightmares when I'm going through withdrawals. And that was actually the first time in my life that it was that bad. I mean, in early 20s, I could stay up all night drinking wake up after four hours of sleep, drink some water, eat some breakfast, and I was fucking golden. You know, I I didn't feel like I was having withdrawals, and I was starting to get that stage in drinking and in life where I was getting a little bit older. My body could no longer tolerate and handle and break down the alcohol, possibly. So your body was saying, fuck you. Body was saying a big fuck you. And where were you at emotionally? You said you were dealing with a breakup. What else was going on? Do you think it was an amplified state of this shame and letdown? Yeah, and guilt and, you know, looking at where I am at at in life at 24. A lot of regret. Since, since, yeah, since 19, never had a license. I lost my license at 19. Still haven't got my license back. Still have never had my own apartment. Still have never, you know, had my own place. Was always either staying with a parent or a girlfriend, hadn't found a career job yet, hadn't 
found stable employment, couldn't keep a job. So yeah, that, that takes a toll on your emotional state because you're looking at rewind five years. I was in a Marine Corps and I was going to make something of myself to five years later and I'm just this drunk piece of shit who's not doing anything in life with, with all the opportunity in the world. I grew up and from teachers and principals, and this I usually always heard when I was getting in trouble, is I had so much potential. So the older I got... When I wasn't amounting to anything and knowing, you know, just growing up and hearing you have so much potential, you have so much potential, and I just still wasn't doing shit with my life, it, 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 you know, it was, it weighed on me. I'm glad you made that segue earlier, being at these lower states. One thing that I haven't asked you yet, what sort of spirituality did you grow up with, did you have at that time? Spirituality. Um, did, did you grow up in any sort of religion yeah, or have... I, uh, growing up, we went to church every Sunday, uh, and that was, we went to a Lutheran church. So my mom is um, fairly religious. And what did you think about that? What What was your relationship? You know, and when I, up until I was about 10, 11, 12, when I started doing drugs and drinking, you know, I went to this, uh, it was like a Bible school, not like... Monday through Friday Bible school, um, but I went to, you know, Bible school. It was on, like, Wednesdays or something like that, Awana. So I used to rehearse biblical transcripts or whatever. Bible are. passages. Bible passages. And I was fairly involved in the church. Uh, and then, you know, I got to an age where I was being dragged and forced to go to church. And at that point, it was, you know, fuck God. Fuck God. Would it be fair to say that drugs and alcohol became your new God? Absolutely. My new God and became my best friend became, you know, my better half, the one thing that I could rely on. And what did your spirituality look like when you were at rock bottom at the age of 24? There was no spirituality whatsoever in my life. What did you think about God? Fuck him. Fuck God. Fuck him. Did you think there was anything bigger out there holding on to something for you, any sort of purpose or meaning, or had you given up? I was at a point where I wanted to give up. Um, you wanted to give up, but you didn't. So I then didn't. what did you do? I ended up finding another treatment. Okay, you found another treatment center. I've only been to one treatment so far, and yeah. I hope it's the only treatment that I go through in my life. Yeah, knock on that fucking wood, bro. And that's what's so important to me about taking things one day at a time, like you said earlier. When I went to treatment... I talked to people that had been to multiple treatments and the common theme that they would or the, the thing that was common about them was they would always say what was going to be different this time. Mm -hmm. Why this time in treatment it was going to stick, why they were going to stay yep. sober. Yep. OK, so what was your it's going to be different this time because I didn't ever want to be that low again. Upon that time, I was actually starting to have suicidal thoughts. I grew up with the understanding that suicide is a form of selfishness and a form of weakness. And I never saw myself as somebody who wanted to take my life. But there were them thoughts there that I hate my life. This is pointless. What am I doing here? Why am I here? It'd just be better if I'm dead. I'm sick and tired of struggling. I'm sick and tired of being broken and alone. And I didn't want to feel like that. So when I went into recovery that time, it was because I wanted to live. If you ask me what was different about that time, it was that I had hope. As long as I do what I have to do, I'll never have to feel like that again. 
You go through this treatment at 24. Mm, You didn't stay sober. I didn't stay sober again. Because, again, you didn't get sober until this time around. It was uh, five months ago tomorrow. Five months ago tomorrow. So how long did you stay sober this time? Because you said you wanted to live and you didn't want to be rock bottom anymore. So how long did you stay sober for and what happened that sobriety ended. So that time around, you know, and I actually, I'm, I'm, I completely missed the whole part that brought me into that treatment. It was because I wanted to, but I also was doing it partially for a court reason. Nudge from the judge. It was a, well, I, I had done it before I, I had got in front of a judge. So it was kind of one of them things that I wanted, I wanted it to look good. I had got in a car accident a few months or six months, eight months prior to that. Um, on the highway, it was pretty bad. I was all over the news, you know, and that didn't stop me from drinking. How long did you stay sober for before you started drinking? Okay. Um, no, I, I just want like the straight yeah. up answer. How long did you stay sober for before you started drinking? Uh, nine months. Nine months. And what happened at that end of the nine months that you decided that you wanted to drink again? That very thing that took you to the place where you never wanted to be again. Why did you pick up? I missed it. You missed it. I missed it. At that time, I remember the last month. So when I say nine months, it was nine consecutive. There was 99 days, there was one slip up, and then it was another like five and a half months. So I got to that point. But at the end of that five and a half months, for about a month before I I actually called our dear friend to see if he wanted to hang out with me uh, and drink, I went to bed and I thought about drinking. I woke up. And I thought about drinking. I was at a meeting and I thought about drinking. I was working, thought about drinking. I was working out. I thought about drinking. There was a whole month of obsession. Did you tell anyone that you were no. obsessing about drinking? No, absolutely not. I kept it to myself. That's uh, That was another reason why that time in recovery did not work. And when I say I was in recovery, was I working the steps? No, I was not. Was I working with a sponsor? No, I was not. I was going to meetings and I thought that was enough. There's been so many times that I've been in recovery, sitting there reading the 12 steps, sitting there listening to people share, sitting there being told to get a sponsor, and it never actually clicked to me that I needed to get a fucking sponsor and work the steps. It it didn't make any sense to me. You know, so I went in and out and I kept failing and I kept failing and I kept wondering why the fuck is this happening to me? What am I doing wrong? I'm doing everything right. I'm going to meetings. I'm staying sober. I'm living my life. I'm being a good person. I'm working on myself. What the fuck am I doing wrong? And then 20 minutes later, walking into a meeting, they're reading how it works. You know, they're reading the 12 steps. I'm still asking, what am I doing wrong? Is I'm not working the fucking steps. You were obsessing about drinking for one month. For a whole month. And then you finally took a drink. Finally took a drink. And it was actually, I had a friend come over and, you know, I bought bought a bottle of Jack Daniels. I still remember. And he drank about half of it with me and then he left. And I remember I had a, I was in a serious relationship at the time. He leaves and I was instantly alone and I was instantly depressed and I was sad and I was looking back and I just threw five and a half months away. What the fuck am I doing? Just miserable. Why am I here again? Like it it did not take long for me to get to a depressed state. It literally took somebody leaving me and I felt abandoned for me to sit in my room and cry. And as my ex-girlfriend comes and she's trying to comfort me, but also trying to take the bottle, I'm like, don't fucking touch my bottle That's why, all me, why me why me why this again why this Poor again me. and Poor what was me. your answer what was my answer why me why me why this again why this again how did this happen again right what's the answer the answer i wasn't working a program 
you weren't you weren't working a program. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the answer and you knew the answer, mm. why didn't you just fucking do it? That's the million dollar question, Nick. Maybe it's not so much as a question as it is an explanation of what addiction really is. Well, yeah. Addiction is two parts. It's your body and it's your mind. They say in the program that we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows. So that means that in our minds, we have an obsession to use or drink, like you were talking about for that last month of your second stint of sobriety. You have that obsession of the mind, and you also have the phenomenon of craving, which means once you put a drink in your body, you need more. You need more. I crave more. I crave more. I crave more. There's something that happens inside my body. I have an allergic reaction, if you want to look at it that way. I have an allergy to alcohol. I have a physical allergy to it. And that was the explanation that I got. And that is what kept me, is because I finally had an answer to why me, why me, why can't I stop, why can't I stop? You said you weren't working the steps. The solution was there. Why do you think that was? Are are you not? You're just like, I'm not done yet. I'm only 24. I got to drink some more. I got to see some more experiences. Or had you just given up? I think I'd given up at that point. I was no longer enjoying recovery. If you're not enjoying recovery, you might as well drink. You might as well fucking drink, you know. And so when I was younger, I I did always. And I might have, like, jinxed or cursed myself. But I I always told myself that at 30, it was going to be 30 when I sobered up and I got my shit together. And that's when I was going to settle down and have a family. So I look back on it. Like, I did need to go through a lot more a lot more shit in life. Maybe I wasn't done. Who knows? If I would have got a sponsor that moment in time, there's a possibility that I'd be sober to this day. But I didn't. And so that's something that I can't dwell on. The best answer is I wasn't ready. If you can be in, in a room, because at that point in time... I mean, I was on a house arrest for two months out of that stint in sobriety in which I wasn't able to go to any meetings. It was work and come home, work and come home. But that moment in time, like out of that nine months, minus the two months of house arrest, I was going to a meeting five or six days a week. So five or six days a week times whatever math you want to do, I would say I went to 100 and 150 meetings, right? People were giving me the solution every day, but I wasn't hearing the fucking solution. So... And that's the best answer I've gotten from you all night, is that you didn't want it yet. You weren't ready yet. And that is, I think that's the biggest misconception that people have when they have a loved one that is in active addiction. They just can't understand. We give them all these things to help them. But at the end of the day, that person has to want that. And if they don't want it, they're not going to keep it. They're not going to. How long did this next stint of drinking Drinking. and drugging last for? Um, We're going to go from 25 to just this last time. Well, so 25 up until 32. Yeah. No, no. There was, sorry, there was another. Oh, there's another one. There was was another one in there. Um, We're going to say 27. Okay. And where were you at then? Were you at another lower rock bottom yeah this time again this was suicidal where it wasn't just like thoughts i was putting a gun to my head and you know granted i never pulled the trigger i again was at a just an extremely fucking low place i i I don't remember where i was living or what i was doing i just remember that it was a no no i i do remember i was living in a house on the west side with our with our dear friend there and it was a drinking and drugging Every day, and this is now I'm bringing hard drugs into the equation. 
I lost two jobs within like three months. I lost two apartments within three months. I I was in a very serious relationship and I lost that woman to my drinking. And so there was a lot of ga- a lot of guilt and a lot of shame in there. And I was, again, at a very low spot and I knew I needed change. And that time I, afterwards I'd went to a sober house upon completing treatment. Um, I was in the sober house for about six months. I think this was the first time I got a sponsor. I briefly worked with them for three weeks, maybe. I got to my four-step. I did a couple pages on my four-step. And uh, I allowed myself, I gave myself um, a million excuses why I needed to move out of that sober house. And then I was back off to drinking for another three years. And here you sit, sober, clean, and serene. For five months, tomorrow. But all we have is? Today. I've had three you know, like I said earlier in the interview, I've had three, I like to call them stints at Sprite. And each one, I did learn something. At each one, I needed it. At each one, if I didn't take that moment, if I didn't take that break from active use, I'm not sure if I would have survived. What's different this time, Jared? I got a sponsor and I worked a fucking steps, Nick. That's it. That's it. That's simple. For me. Willingness. Uh, if you were to ask me what is the most important part in my program of recovery today, it's willingness. What are you willing to do? This willingness. What are these anything, things? Anything. Um, so this would may you, sound you, like would something. Would you kiss me? I, I'm willing not to willing kiss to kiss you because that's not going to help my recovery. I will do oh. anything that's recovery based. Oh. You know what, Nick? Get over here. Kiss me on the cheek. Um, or you can kiss my bald head. <laughs> It's I, shaved. I thought it's you were going to say it's balls not, for not, a second. I'm not. I didn't say balls. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going there. Yeah, get your head um, out of the gutter, you filthy ginger. So this time it's willingness. And, and What does willingness look like? Willingness, it looks like to me, so you follow simple suggestions by a sponsor, which I have. And upon getting him, he gave me a few, uh, they weren't requirements, they were simple suggestions that it was I either follow them or maybe it's not going to work out. And what were some of these suggestions? The he simple gave you? suggestion is call him every day, Nick. I don't like calling people, but I'm going to call him every day. So why are you calling him every day? Because he told me he wants me to call him every day. Why do you think he said that? Why do I think he said? I still haven't figured it out. Can I shine a little light shine on a, that? Shine a little light on that. Maybe he asks you to call him every day because that call puts another thing between you and your next drink. And my next drink, I can see that. I mean, yesterday alone, we we still, you know, there's been days in the last five months that I haven't called them. Um, so it hasn't been every day, but it's six out of seven days guaranteed. We still can talk on the phone for 45 minutes. For somebody that doesn't like to talk on the phone, uh, that like to is talk on the a phone. miracle. It's a miracle. Uh, so calling another addict. And that's an everyday thing. Now, we're going to let him listen to this at some other time because I haven't told him I'm on a podcast yet, but we're going to let him know. Uh, it doesn't happen every night. But the fact that I still pull my phone out and I still call people when I don't want to, it's huge. That's the willingness there. Another thing that's put between you and your next drink Me is calling drink, another yeah. addict to remind you that yeah. you're one too. That I'm one to. Going to three meetings a week. So you have these three things. You have meeting with a sponsor. You have calling another addict or alcoholic or whatever. And you have going to meetings. And I'm going to meetings. Yep. What else? No, I think that was it. That sounds pretty good to me. That that is all it takes. For me, with everybody, they're different. You know, obviously thick-headed in the past. And I figured that my way was better. 
you know, because all those times that I heard get a sponsor and work the steps, if I wasn't doing it, clearly it's because I knew better and it's because I didn't think I fucking needed that. And now at this time, I upon finding one and working the steps, I, I don't have to do much. In retrospect and in hindsight, when me and him sit there and talk about it, the, the bare minimum, he calls it, the bare minimum is calling him, calling somebody else, and I'm supposed to pray every morning and every night. I get down on my knees and I pray. What does your prayer life look like? What does is, what is praying sound like? What do you say? Praying sounds like to me, so I, I have a morning routine. It took me a few months to get to this point where I could do it day in and day out. So I wake up and I write a, a gratitude list, five things that I'm grateful for. And what are you grateful for today, Jerry? Grateful for today? Uh, the easiest one, as always, is I'm grateful to be sober. But I think this morning on my gratitude list, I wrote that I'm grateful that I have this new space heater that I have running in my freezing bat. In my freezing bathroom. If and it's the simple things like the that. things, yeah. That I, brings you back to, hey, it's not just about me and what I want and what I need. It's not just about me. And I have gratitude for the things that are granted to me by yeah. the universe, by whatever. It's getting outside of myself and sounds like a little bit of humility, being humble. And talking about gratitude, what are you most grateful about in this new stint of sobriety? It's to actually have the mindset. I'm grateful for the mindset that I have in this um, in this moment because, again, in and out, in and out of recovery, I'm not going to say it gets old because every time I'm in recovery, I'm not like, oh, fuck, I, did, I wish I didn't fuck up all those other times. But I'm grateful that, that I, I finally got my head out of my ass. When I walked in, I walked in with the willingness that I do have to do anything and to go to any lengths. There's so many simple things that I do that, you know, last night didn't want to go to the meeting. I have I have a service commitment at that meeting. I had to go to it. The Be helpful aspect of that service commitment is... It got me to go to the meeting. Gives you a reason to show up. Gives me a reason to show up, which it, it was a meeting on gratitude. Which hmm. you you can never have too Imagine much of that. that. But but like before going to it, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm running it through the, my mind about what I'm gonna say because I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I was in a bad headspace, right? I mean, this still happens. People have bad fucking days. Shit happens. Life goes on. What ultimately got me to go to the meeting was I don't want to drink again. It was that simple. It was well, I don't want to go to this fucking meeting. Am I gonna drink if I don't go to this meeting? Not to fucking night. But I might tomorrow, or I might the day after that. I might need this meeting tonight, you know. And for me, it's life or death. Um, because the last time before, rewind it to a year and some change before I went into one of the last, the last treatment that I hopefully will ever have to go into. I was again, I was suicidal. I didn't want to live anymore. You know, putting a gun to my fucking head loaded. And that's what I'm grateful for. Huh? I'm grateful that. You are sitting across from me right now, living and breathing. And happy. Finding a journey in yeah. recovery. That's beautiful. I am so glad that you didn't pull the trigger. I'm honored that you're here tonight to tell your story. Good burp. Trying not to. It's okay. Uh, there we go. Yeah, I can do fake burps. All right. Back to serious eyes. Yeah. I'm so grateful you're here. I'm grateful that you didn't pull the trigger. I'm grateful for you because you helped me stay sober. Every time I see you, it makes me happy and energized for life and excited to be in recovery. 
there's something about your eyes. They talk about that a lot, right? There's something about his eyes that made me reinvigorated in my program. And it's that sparkle. It's that little bit of je ne sais quoi. I don't know what. But you got it. And I hope you keep it. We'll be right back. And Jared is going to talk about some of that hope. You want to sing it, Jared? Hope. You want to have a hope off? You're going to have a okay. hope off. All right, here we go. We'll see who can go the longest. That's what she said. <laughs> you ready? Here on Authentic and Keeping Authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you add on today's program. To kick us off, you always hear Mad Madness by Muse. And then we got into Jared's Jams. At the first break, you heard Love Yours by J. Cole. And to take us off into the night sky. P.O.S. by De La Souls. And remember, as always, be good to yourselves. It is ever so important. We spelled it just wrong. P.O.S. I be the new generation of slaves here to make papes off this land corporation's rape. From that life, I'm trying to separate, but I guess I'm living dreams because my rent's always a month late. Product of an East German black who kissed the neck of a pretty woman named Grace. But he left my life just a little too soon. Didn't see me catch the doom tree fame as we go a little something like this. Look, mom, no protection. Now I got a baby boy by the name of Jake. And I've been trying to play the cowboy to rustle in the dough. When I think I'm getting better every passing day. I'm not an early bird, plus the feathers are black. So by the time I catch an apple, usually it's fine. But it's a must to decipher one's girl from the round sweet apples that are rotten on the inside. I cherish my free time, but I maximize so my soul needs to unwind. I wanna see the stars be the moon to my sun, but I'm always on the run, run, run. I'm fake to all these hard case kids. I'll raise a black fist, but won't say in the things I write. And I don't say, cause I don't think it's right. I know my boy struggled with that for over half his life. I guess we got our own lives to live, but I'm stretched too thin trying to build a kingdom to rule. And I think to the past sometimes, and dag, man, it's bad. See, I kinda acted like a fool. But I've apologized to the lives that I've touched wrong. Pride to the back, move ahead strong. But I can safely say, I've never played a woman with a karma catching up later on. I tried to walk the right side of the tracks, but I've hopped a couple trains. Mom would cry if she knew the haps. But I can stand who I am and face today straight. No, we're not a thinking change what I be saying. I wanna let you know. 